Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. It's January 9th, 2019, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. Today, we'll be talking about a very big schism that's happening right now within the Orthodox Church. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined, of course, to talk about this by my co-host, Mark Galley. Hello. Hey, Mark. Happy Winter Day. It's good to see you. Good to see you. All right. Who is our guest that we actually can't see? But Our guest is George Hancock Stephan. He's an Associate Professor of Church History at Palmer Theological Seminary. He's also taught uh, church history, Baptist polity, and missions at schools such as Wheaton, Princeton Seminary, New Brunswick Seminary, and New York Divinity School. The relationship between evangelicalism and orthodoxy is of special interest to him, and he was one of the contributors to Zondervan's Three Views on Eastern Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism, which has already been translated into Romanian and is currently being translated into Serbian. Welcome, George. Thank you. Happy New Year. I hope your New Year's been good so far. Thank you. Same to you. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to get into this discussion today. I know some people in this room, <clears throat> Mark, think they have it all figured out, but I am not one of those people, actually. So I'm... No, the only thing that those of us who know something have figured out is that orthodoxy is as confused as any other Christian movement in the world. <laughs> all right. Agree or disagree, George? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let me go ahead and give everyone a sense of what's going on. So last fall, the Patriarch of Moscow cut ties with the Patriarch of Constantinople. This action severed the world's largest Orthodox church from its historic home and launched a series of events that recently took a sharp turn. Last week, the Patriarch of Constantinople offered the Orthodox Church of Ukraine independence from the Patriarch of Russia, actions which were not treated warmly by the Patriarch of Moscow. In fact, in our own coverage, we referred to this as, quote, the biggest Christian schism since the Protestant Reformation. So the stakes of this division are pretty big. But understanding the Orthodox Church isn't intuitive for most of us Protestants. They're organized far less hierarchically than the Catholic Church and hail largely from a part of the world that's usually misunderstood by Westerners. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll explore the history of the Orthodox Church, what it really means to cut ties with another church, and what autocephaly is and why it matters. All right, there's obviously so much stuff going on here. So, Mark, I think it's important that we start with a gut check, and I'd love to hear from you about what your initial reaction is to this stuff. My initial reaction to our news report was, I, I was wondering whether the word schism was actually the right way to talk about this sort of thing in the context of the Orthodox Church. Then we got an email from someone who knows something about this who said the article was wonderful, incredible, the most thoughtful article he's seen on it. So I'm anxious to get into it with George and uh, try to figure out in what sense is it a schism or is it just a spat or is it just an argument? What's going on here? I think that I feel relatively similarly to you about using that word schism. You know, you think of that as like 
I don't know, or a word that history book writers are going to get to use to talk about things later on. Something that only happens once every 500 years or something. Yeah. Something like that. So Right? It, it sounds like super serious. I also just don't have a strong of a gut reaction, though, at the same time, because I don't necessarily understand the full stakes of what is happening. And I think emotionally I felt sad because I, I have done a fair amount of reading in things orthodox and the political things that go on in orthodoxy, both in the United States and elsewhere. And it is, um, and there's so much I admire about orthodoxy. And it, their, their worship is just so stunningly incredible. To have this human sinfulness and pride and all that enter it is always a sad moment for me. Well, George, we are really happy that we get to talk to you today. And we're just going to kind of hit the ground running, if that's okay with you. I'd like to start this conversation by kind of getting acquainted with how the Orthodox Church is organized. Who would you say has the authority, and how is it distributed? The authority uh, rests primarily with the patriarch. And so, in a way, at this time, the um, the battles between Constantinople, uh, Moscow, and Kiev is not between the priests or the Orthodox uh, congregants. Uh, the battle is primarily between the patriarchs because the patriarchs have the power. To a great degree, um, the patriarch of Constantinople uh, was regarded still uh, as the person that, in a way, was leading the uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox Church. However, uh, one of the, the things that probably it is hard for us in the West to understand is the the power in uh, various Orthodox priests, bishops, and patriarchs, and that is the safeguard or the defense of uh, truth or theology. As you uh, know, the whole idea of uh, orthodoxy uh, means uh, what is uh, truthful, what is true. And so, uh, for those of us in the West, things like anathemas and schisms, you know, we feel that those things, you know, should not be used. And yet, when you look to the first millenniums after every ecumenical council, what do they do? They said, this is the truth. If you don't believe, then we are going to load you with a couple of anathemas. Uh, this is the truth. If you don't agree with us, uh, we are going to uh, to split from you. Uh, and all of that in safeguarding what the patriarch or the council considers to be uh, the truth delivered to them by God and uh, granted to them to safeguard that truth. So to make that clear, on the one hand, the patriarch wields a fair amount of authority, if it's even if it's only informal. I don't think there is a constitution that makes him the pope of orthodoxy. But if he were to suggest or promulgate a doctrine that was unorthodox, it wouldn't necessarily, you're saying basically because of the checks and balances between bishops and priests and local churches, it probably wouldn't get very far. Is that what you're saying? Um, that, that is correct. And at the same time, while um, historically you know that the, the division uh, over East and West, one of the reasons for the division was the, uh, the pride that the, the Bishop of Rome had by coining the phrase primus inter pares, or the first among the equals, which is illogical. <laughs> that, you know, that the rest of the bishops says, well, if we are all equal, you cannot be the first. 
And so then you had the rest of, of the bishops or the historical, historically, when I say is the five bishops at that time, uh, namely uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, those are the first five uh, bishops. And so when Rome says, you know, we are the first among the equals, the other four uh, have rebelled against that. And that was, in a way, one of the initial uh, fissures within the body to to say to the bishop of Rome, no, you cannot be the first. We are all equal. Having said that, it is very interesting that while the Orthodox bishops have rejected the supremacy or the first uh, position of the, the bishop of Rome, among them, they play primus inter pares uh, in such a way that the title, the authority, and everything else should belong to uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople, yet the uh, Patriarch of Moscow has behaved as though the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople no longer has the authority. And the other thing that is very important to know at this junction is that the other statement is that there are three Romes. The first Rome, the historical Rome, has been heretical. The second Rome is Constantinople, which right now is in slavery under the Muslim uh, Empire. And then the third Rome, which is the Rome of Moscow, is the only one that is free. So it's the playing of power. So that's why Moscow, uh, the Patriarch of Moscow, might act like he's the uh, first among you. Correct. I see. Because, like, you know, in, in order for the Patriarch of Constantinople, even to leave Constantinople, he needs to receive the permission of the Turkish government. And that's why it's considered that he is in a subjection or the other uh, word, he is in slavery to the Muslim empire. And we should just uh, make it clear for our readers that it's, it's the Orthodox who consider the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, as heretical in, in his claims. Uh, Correct. Yeah. This is not a statement of fact. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, George, I have a question for you about just kind of understanding this hierarchy a little bit better. Am I in correct in understanding that it kind of goes from priests to bishops to patriarchs? That is correct with one minor delineation. And thus is that in contrast with Roman Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, the priest can be married. However, if you are married, you cannot move to the next level. Namely, if you are a priest who is married, you cannot become a bishop or you cannot become a patriarch. Thus, there are two levels in the structure of Orthodox. The first level is uh, the level of the priest. The priests are the ones who are teaching and doing the liturgy and all of that. However, bishops and uh, other leaders in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, they are primarily non-married, which means all of them are monks. And then, obviously, then to be a patriarch, you would also have to be a monk as well. Correct. Okay. And I think the expression I would use when it comes to patriarchs is normally the buck stops there. Like, they are the, the, the final authority of their particular church in, in that country? Correct. Okay. How many patriarchs are there? We... Talk about the fact that every Orthodox church, ethnically speaking, can have a patriarch. 
that's that's we bring the other fantastic word autocephalous and that is that each ethnic church has a patriarch and it is independent or we can coin the other word that all the ethnic orthodox churches are co-independent with one another you know i i'm just really curious what are we talking about when we talk about the patriarch of moscow is that a church in and of itself a body see the the thing that there is one orthodox church globally the historical orthodox church but then in order to understand the smaller areas, you have to put an ethnic group in front of it. And so there is the Russian Orthodox Church, and this covers the whole country of Russia. It is the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, it is the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. Uh, and so ethnically now, you have an Orthodox Church who in a way has an allegiance to a patriarch, but at the same time has a lot of independence. We, we are talking um, about a whole country as, as you read those numbers, you know, how many churches, how many bishops, how many priests. And so those are uh, in allegiance under the authority or to use another more theological word, they are under the blessing of the patriarch of uh, of Moscow or under the blessing of the patriarch of Constantinople. So we could call, we could talk about the different Orthodox churches. Correct. Okay. From what I understand, the Orthodox believe that the fullness of the church is present in each individual congregation. Is that correct in your understanding? Yes. It's not just part of the church. It's no, no. fullness you, of the you're church. You're right. Yeah. How far back does the Orthodox church date itself? Okay, the Orthodox Church considers itself to be the authentic church. Uh, it also calls itself the Church of the Seven Ecumenical Councils. And so as a result of that, the Orthodox Church would say that from the beginning, uh, from the beginning, there was one church. Uh, thus, we can say that there have been two schisms, one that we're talking about, the uh, 1054, uh, and then the second one was within the um, uh, Reformation in uh, 1517, 1522, when there is a, a second schism. Uh, one of the interesting things that uh, when I did my uh, PhD work, I talked with John Meindorf, the well-known uh, Orthodox theologian. And so I went to interview him for my um, dissertation, and I said, uh, Dr. Meindorf, I'm here to uh, get uh, your perspective on uh, uh, Reformation and Orthodoxy and Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, uh, with a smile on his face, John Meindorf says, you know, my, my son, my son, the Reformation was God's punishment to the Catholics for splitting with us. <laughs> there you go. You obviously have been, uh, as an evangelical, very much interested in orthodoxy. Why, I mean, why should our listeners care about what's happening in Moscow and Constantinople and the rest of the world with the Orthodox Church? Um, personally speaking, um, there are a number of things uh, that I do, and that is whenever the um, 
Eastern Orthodox Easter is on a different date than the Easter for the Protestant and Catholics. I make an assignment to all of my students to attend an Eastern Orthodox service. And that is because I think that uh, the Easter celebration in the uh, Orthodox Church, it is one of the most powerful theological uh, services that you can observe. So the, the emphasis on the uh, uh, Orthodox Church on the resurrection and the centrality of the resurrection, I think, is just, uh, uh, just fantastic. So that is one. I think the other one is... Uh, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, in its liturgical service, if one pays attention to uh, the liturgical services, I think it has so much Bible that sometimes there is more Bible in the liturgical service in Eastern Orthodox Church than in some of our uh, Protestant uh, Protestant churches. No, no, that's been my experience as well, yeah. And I think the other one is, uh, with all the shortcomings of the uh, Eastern Orthodox churches throughout the world. I think the fact that uh, through so many uh, conquests by the Muslim Empire, by the Communist Empire, uh, they have been able, by God's grace, to withstand and still continue to be a witness for the Lord. Well, let's go to present day with this current crisis that's happening can you tell us about the particular relationship between Ukrainian Orthodox Christians and Russian Orthodox Christians? Uh, there are a couple of things to understand. The first one is uh, what I consider the equal sign. The equal sign is that to be Russian, you make an equal sign is to be Orthodox. To be Romanian is to be Orthodox. And so there is the equal sign between ethnicity and orthodoxy. That's number one. Number two is we go back now over 1,000 years, and that is that when the conversion of the Slavic tribes happened, the main church or the great development of orthodoxy happens to be in that wonderful city called Kiev. And so historically, the, the root or the foundation of orthodoxy was not in Moscow, was in Kiev. Uh, through history, the, the church or the leadership of the church has moved from Kiev into Moscow. And so, in a way, the Ukrainian Orthodox always were able to say, we were on first. <laughs> we, among the Slavic groups that became Orthodox, uh, you know, King Vladimir, when he reigned, he reigned from, from this place. And so th this whole idea between uh, white Russian, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, and other uh, Slavic groups, uh, while they're all considered themselves to be orthodox, at the same time, there is this minor battle between every uh, ethnic group right now. So just to bring the other thing which you haven't asked me about is uh, if you are asking uh, somebody who is Greek today, and said, now, who has, pro who has produced the greatest uh, theologian in Eastern Orthodoxy? The Greeks are going to say, wow, that's a foolish question. After all, we have produced the greatest theologians. And that starts the conversation with the Russians who are going, no, 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 we have produced the best theologians in Orthodoxy. Why are there three different Orthodox churches in Ukraine? I think is. Uh, the, the fact that you can modify 
the the things that you believe. Basically, it has to do the church that is in Ukraine that has been still retaining its connection with the patriarch of Moscow. And then there's another church. Uh, when I talk about another church, I mean a bishop, uh, an area. And so the bishop can say, no, 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 I am going to retain my my uh, relationship with the Bishop of Kiev, and then there's another bishop who who is modifying some things. So suddenly, because they are modifying even small things, they can claim somehow uh, a semi-autonomous or semi-autocephalous thing. So that's why there are three groups right now. When a bishop says, we have our loyalty with the the Patriarch of Moscow, and even goes so far as to say, we agree with him and we want nothing to do with the Patriarch of Constantinople. Can a layperson parishioner on the ground is he now for he or she is now forbidden from taking communion at the in the in the uh, in these others? If they were traveling and they were traveling and they ended up in Constantinople, could they attend worship services and take communion? Yes, in? yes, they are still uh, they are still Orthodox. Okay, so it means something slightly different than we might take it to mean when there's a schism. So can you tell us why the Patriarch of Moscow cut ties with the Patriarch of Constantinople then last year? I think it's fair to say it is not strictly theological. It is fair also to say it is not strictly uh, relational. I think it's a combination of theology, relation, and politics due to the fact that in the Orthodox theology, in the Orthodox structure, uh, the whole idea of who is over the other, like uh, in the Roman Catholicism, the spiritual aspect is always on top of the earthly aspect. Uh, that comes from 800 when the, the Pope has uh, crowned Charles the Great. He had crowned him, therefore the spiritual is above the earthly now, in the Russian thinking or an Orthodox thinking, they have what is called the symphony that the, the Tsar and the Patriarch, or in this case, to put it uh, uh, very uh, uh, openly, Putin and the Patriarch are creating the Russian symphony. And as such, the Patriarch is very closely working with him because that is what God has uh, empowered him, namely Putin, to do. And so the patriarch and the the Russian leadership are working very closely together. And so it behooves, it behooves uh, this unified front between Putin and the patriarch to say what is happening in, uh, in Ukraine is something that we don't like. Uh, therefore, Ukraine did not like what the patriarch was doing, and thus they aligned themselves much stronger with the patriarch of Constantinople. And as a result of that, now we have a schism. Okay. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. 
It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. It's interesting that these things are kind of related to politics as well. Would you say that any country that has a strong Orthodox presence, there is that concept of symphony as well that's playing out in a country like Greece, for instance? Well, to to put it this way to your answer is how many non-Greek churches are in Greece? Basically, in Greece, to even have a... Uh, uh, a sign in front of your church that you are, let's say, uh, a Presbyterian church. Uh, you cannot have a sign in, the, uh, in front of the building because Greece is Orthodox. And so uh, if you go to receive, to ask for a permit to build a church, and you're going to say, I'm going to build a Presbyterian church, the government is not going to grant you permission to build because Greece is Orthodox. So there's still a lot of symphony play uh, going in every Orthodox church. So that symphony is, uh, sounds like it's both historical, cultural, and theological, I guess. Correct. But it doesn't strike me as it's, maybe it's more profound, but um, you get that sense even in America in various periods of our American life. I'd say in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a sort of a symphony between mainline Christianity and our government. In the Trump administration, there's kind of a symphony between the uh, Christian right and uh, Donald Trump's administration. So in one sense, I'm just trying to help our listeners understand, it's, it, it sounds foreign to us, but on the ground, uh, we understand some of what's going on in our own experience. Yeah, there, we always uh, create allegiances. I think for any person to say I am apolitical is not truthful, you know, no matter what your theology Come is. On, George, well, I say that all the time, George. You can't call me on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. I'm, I'm just kidding you. Yeah, you're, you're saying religious people are always influenced by politics and politics is always influenced by religion. Yeah. If I'm understanding correctly, then it sounds like because of these worsening um, ties between Ukraine and Russia from a ge geopolitical standpoint, you would say that this particular split that has happened is is because of those strained ties and not necessarily because of a theological difference, for instance. Yeah. I mean, you can look from a different angle. If the Russians would not have taken Crimea and if there would not have been a dispute between Russia and uh, and Ukraine, I don't think you would have had the schism. So would you would you agree with that evaluation that this is, in fact, the biggest schiz Christian schism since the Protestant Reformation? Is that a fair statement in your view? I don't think it is because it still affects two countries. Right now, it just affects Russia and Ukraine. And maybe Turkey a little bit? Maybe a little bit. Maybe. But maybe what the... Uh... Uh, the writers inferring in that is that those two churches are awfully large, both the Ukrainian church and the Russian Orthodox church. I was just going to read from our report. It, it said that Russia accounts for roughly half of Orthodoxy's 300 million believers. 
and says Constantinople is only 3,000. Yeah, no, the Church of Constantinople, it's really interesting in that regard. It has a lot of informal authority and respect, but it's a very, very small church. Yeah, so maybe what you were saying is that because the Russia, or yeah, because the Patriarch of Moscow had power, I don't know what to say, clout, authority, authority yeah. over, you know, 150 million and then there was division between that particular church. Yeah, so that is a fairly significant schism, that's for sure. One other stat that we had in here, I just thought I'd read. It said, Moscow governs 12,000 parishes, while the two Ukrainian churches have 5,000 and 1,000, respectively. So they're losing a third of their churches, though. So that's why it's a, a troubling to Moscow's point of view. Correct. But once you you start looking around, it it is important to understand that there are Orthodox churches throughout the United States. There are Orthodox churches throughout the continent of Africa. There are Orthodox churches. So the Orthodox churches, I mean, missiologically speaking, within the last uh, last century, uh, there has been a lot of work and a lot of good results of where the Orthodox are. Uh, and so those those Orthodox churches, those Orthodox bishops, the question is, under whose leadership or authority they want to be at this time. Always those very hot questions, I imagine. So I just want to talk a little bit more about these like particulars of the actual thing that are happening right now. Who is Bartholomew? Bartholomew is the patriarch of, uh, of Constantinople. Okay. And so Bartholomew is is kind of seen as the the instigator, the bad guy here in this situation. According to the Russian, the troublemaker. Yes, but see, he could not have done anything until he got a request from Ukraine. But of course, I think what I understand is the Patriarch of Moscow was hoping that the Patriarch of Constantinople, aka Bartholomew, would not kind of would, he would mind his own business and not necessarily get involved with that, which he has not done. So now there's now there's drama, in other words. Correct. And I would think the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople is, uh, as a human being, is flattered that someone would ask him to do this sort of thing. And this helps him have some practical authority uh, in the eyes of uh, orthodoxy. So there, like, like George said, there's a lot of things going on, psychological, social, cultural, political at the same time. Well, so we know now how the Orthodox Church regards the Catholic Church, as you made it clear. They see them as heretical. Well, at least at least my endor thinks that's right. <laughs> but the relationships between the Orthodox and Catholics has quite warmed up quite a bit in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah? yeah. Correct. Uh, and again, one has to uh, to bring in the fact that it was, it, it was, the initiative was started by the Patriarch of Constantinople and then was followed by the Patriarch of Moscow. And then other patriarchs either have made a trip uh, to uh, to Rome or in various trips, then the Pope would go. Uh, and so it, when when he went to, to visit uh, Constantinople, you know, he went to Hagia Sophia, you know, the, the great church that was built by Justinian. Uh, and so... There, there has been a lot of expectation. What is the Pope going to say when he goes to Constantinople? And he was very guarded. I almost said nothing. But in their catechism, it's really interesting. In the Catholic catechism, they will often stop in the middle of explaining some doctrine and say, 
Well, our Orthodox brethren, I forget how they exactly phrase it, but our, 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 our Orthodox brethren see things a little differently, and here's how they understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that's a remarkable change. Uh, they don't just say the Orthodox see it differently and they're heretical. They say, this is a different way of looking at this particular doctrine. Yes, and I, I think you, you're right. Within the last 40 years, there has been a, a, a worming, more visiting uh, between all the three groups, the, the Orthodox, the Catholics, and, and the Protestants, yes. So what is the relationship then between the Orthodox Church and the Protestant Church today? It, it goes on two different uh, ways. There is a lot of warmth when the Orthodox and uh, the Evangelicals and the Protestants come together and they have a meeting in Boston and New York and the big cities. Uh, and so... Uh, as as an evangelical, I very much welcome all the things that are going on, and I pray that things will go better and will experience you know, the, the oneness of the body of Christ. Uh, and so uh, on what I call the conference level, the academic level, the ecumenical level, there's a lot of warmth. That warmth is not always taking place in our villages and in our cities where there's almost no connection between the local Orthodox Church or the local Protestant Church. Uh, I'm looking to the time in which uh, what is happening in our get-togethers, in our conferences, will start to be implemented uh, throughout, uh, throughout the regions. Earlier, you mentioned that basically if you're baptized in the Orthodox Church, you are then part of the Orthodox Church. And... I know that that is obviously one way that religions grow is through just more people having children. Is there any sense that the Orthodox Church is also growing through any missions efforts? Uh, definitely. In the United States, there is an uh, evangelical Orthodox Church that was an offshoot from Campus Crusade. There uh, were people from Campus Crusade who wanted to become Orthodox, uh, and so they uh, checked uh, with various uh uh, leaderships, and so they have been accepted as the Evangelical Orthodox by the Antiochian Church. <laughs> and again, you know, you needed to find out, can you be a part of the Orthodox Church? And so they went to Constantinople, and the Constantinople did not receive them at all. And so they went and, and they checked with the Antiochian Church, and that's how they, they came in. And so uh, the Orthodox Church, many of them, Russian Orthodox, Bulgarian Orthodox, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox have been very missiological within the last 50 years. And so you go to certain places, and I'm going to talk about uh, the home of New Jersey. Uh, you go to some places here in which basically they are speaking only Greek or Russian, but you go in some other churches and you find out that they do speak English because their congregation, while they may be the second or third generation, Greek or Russian or something like that, now they have an English-speaking group. And so uh, throughout the world, they have moved out of their ethnic groups and they have uh, created churches, uh, missiological churches. It's pretty much fair to say, I think, that uh, if someone is converted to Orthodoxy in America, it's, there's a fair chance that they've, conf- they've been uh, nurtured and discipled and converted in an Antiochian church because of their emphasis on welcoming this American evangelical group. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, just for our readers' uh, interest, especially our subscribers, I'm sure if you go to our archives, uh, 
we've we just made available to our s- subscribers. We covered that movement back in the, it was the 70s and 80s. It was quite a phenomenal thing that was happening. The other thing that is very important, again, I think that Christianity Today did cover, is the whole charismatic movement has touched all of the groups. It has touched Protestants, it has touched uh, the Roman Catholics, but it also has touched uh, the Orthodox churches. And so there are uh, charismatic Orthodox uh, people. So it's, again, a fantastic movement of the Holy Spirit. All right. Uh, I guess my my final question would be for you is how can we pray for this situation? I, I think my advice is is always twofold. Number one, go and worship in an Orthodox church and see what the church does. And then number two is partner with somebody for whom you would pray by name. So that uh, if you are visiting an Orthodox church, you know, try to talk with a uh, with a priest or somebody, and because I think it's important for us not only to talk uh, or to pray globally, but to start uh, praying and talking with people in our neighborhood. And I would also encourage you. I have done this the local Antiochian church here. It's always helpful if you can phone the the priest ahead of time and say you're going to be coming to visit. And uh, at that church in particular, they're very good about making sure that there's someone in the congregation who will work, go through the service with you, because it is, it is confusing as to what you should be doing and when and how, and to have that help just makes the service that much more meaningful. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for the really interesting discussion. People can give their feedback to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. They can also send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we get a chance to share listener feedback, which we always really appreciate. And as you guys may remember, a couple weeks ago, we did a podcast about loneliness and the responsibility of the church to kind of speak into this really painful point in our society right now. So we got this great email from Jason DeGraff at Northridge Church, and I'm going to read it to you guys. So he wrote, It was alluded to or emphasized that some of the loneliness that Christians may be experiencing today is related to attending megachurches instead of small churches, and that finding community is a bigger struggle in megachurches than small churches. This would seem to be the likely conclusion, but from the studies that Leadership Network has done, people are more likely to have friends at church, attend a Bible study or group, volunteer, and attend church more regularly in a large church than a small church. While none of these things guarantee community or take away quote-unquote loneliness, Emphasizing that megachurches don't address loneliness as well as small churches seems to be a faulty idea. I serve as a community groups pastor at a quote-unquote megachurch in Rochester, New York, that is very passionate about creating community and found much of what you shared about this podcast very helpful in thinking about addressing loneliness. But I did think that the statements about megachurches and loneliness could use some additional perspective. And I would agree with him on that. Actually, my experience with megachurches is because they are so concerned about people getting lost in their midst, that most of them work really hard at getting people connected in some way, usually in a small group. So that's a fair nuance to our conversation. Thank you, Jason. And anyone else who wants to chime in, again, you can do so on Twitter at CT Podcasts or send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. I want to remind everyone this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And 
in our January, February issue, we always have our book award for the year. And so, Mark, I know you probably have thoughts. In fact, I think you might have served as a judge for the book awards. I am always one of the judges. Okay. We have quite a few How judges. Does that happen? I don't know. That seems biased. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't nominate my own books, so that's a problem as far as I'm concerned because I always think my books are the best of the year. But Okay. But we've been doing these book awards since the 90s, so it's quite a tradition here at CT. And we try to, uh, we tell our judges, we have four to five judges in each category who read, who get, once we narrow it down to four to five books in each category, read the books and then vote and evaluate them. And we hope that we are picking the books that have the most relevance for our typical CT reader. So again, we, uh, we did that for the two, 2019 book awards and you can, uh, you could get that issue and look through it. It's just, a, it's a actually, it's not just a plus for the authors, which is nice for an author to receive an award. And it's not just nice for the publishers who probably will end up being able to sell more books and promote the message of that book. Uh, but it's also a great way to create a reading list for the coming year and to try to uh, read what Christianity Today thinks are the best books of the previous year. So I encourage you to subscribe and get a copy of that. Yeah. And make up your reading list. Do it. Morgan and I are both big fans of reading. We think reading's awesome. It's true. I already just finished my first um, fantasy romance this year. So well, there you go. I'm sure that's exactly the type of fair that you talk about <laughs> and want to recommend. No, it's really good to, to explore different genres. <laughs> well, after reading all about Native Americans last year, I decided yeah. to read some sort of literary junk food. All right. So... Support us and subscribe to the magazine. Again, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. Mark, you are up first. Well, as you know, I'm kind of not, I'm not a big sports fan anymore. It's true. You have new interests. I have new interests, but once in a while I watch something. So last night we decided to watch the national championship and... Decided to invite a couple friends over, and it was just such a delightful evening to well, I really watch some extraordinary football, first of all. That was a delight. But then to be with friends and just to uh, fellowship around snacks and a gladiatorial display on, on the TV. <laughs> and the part of Clemson. It's true. Although there was more artistry than there was sheer brute force in that, in that thing. It was... Did you have a place you want people to find you, too? Oh, just the, the galley report. It's a weekly newsletter I put out. You can get to it by going to Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I, in which I link to articles and comment on them. And you can subscribe to that if you find it interesting. No pressure, though. <laughs> no pressure, but we'll cut you off from this podcast if you don't subscribe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, Mark. All right, George. One of the things for which I'm very, very thankful is how God uh, creates opportunities for us to uh, be, uh, you know, in in His uh, kingdom, and and so uh, for me, uh, one of the great um, events happened in uh, uh, 2017, which was uh, 500 years from the Reformation, and so I was uh, blessed in 2017, uh, since I am a uh, church historian with emphasis on Reformation, to uh, go to uh, to Belgrade and to go to. Uh, to Bucharest, and as a, a reform historian, to uh, uh, to talk about Calvin and Augustine um, in the uh, 
uh, Orthodox Theological Seminary uh, in uh, Belgrade, and then to talk about Reformation at the University of Bucharest. And so I just look forward to uh, ways in which God is going to uh, to use us in the coming years in uh, in His Church, uh, Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. Did you do any traveling in 2018? I did not, but uh, in uh, in March, I'll be traveling again to Republic of Serbia, and then uh, in October, we have uh, we hope to have the book translated and presented at the uh, the book fair in Belgrade. Very cool. What is your connection to Serbia? I was born there, but uh, I'm ethnically Romanian. I was born in Serbia, and then I lived in Italy, so I can confuse everybody. <laughs> Very cool. Well, and and how long have you lived in the States for? Uh, I have uh, been in the States from the time I was uh, 16. All right. So I have my uh, high school, college, and everything else here. But I have my childhood back home. Part of it in Italy, most of it in Serbia, and uh, ethnically, I'm Romanian. So remind people of the name of your book again. Uh, It is Three Views on uh, Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism. My precious moment is that last week I went to Chicago's Natural History Museum, which is called the Field Museum. And I think the last time I was there was back in 2014. So it had been a while. I think I remembered none of it, maybe one or two exhibits. And I really enjoyed the time that I spent there. I hung out a lot in the Polynesian section where I learned something like, for instance, that they speak French and Tahiti which I did not know. thought that was really interesting. They also had a lot of signs up that said they're going to be redoing their Native American exhibit over the next couple of years. And I found that interesting to, you know, I'm anticipating what it's going to look like and the way they're going to try to work with Natives themselves more to kind of change what the exhibit is all about. And Sue the Dinosaur is also back. I don't know if anyone knows who Sue the Dinosaur is, but they are a gigantic dinosaur um, T-Rex that was found a number of years ago, and I guess the display just reopened. My grandson will be so so happy to know that. Yeah, it's a good trip if you're out here. I recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that section. Anyway, the Field Museum was cool. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of this podcast, Quick to Listen. Thank you to everyone who rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts. We truly appreciate you. And if you haven't done that, this first week of the year would be a great time to start, or second week, whatever, first month of the year. Just go ahead and do it anyway. You can find this podcast on all major podcast platforms, and it's produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. Our music is done by Sweeps. Thank you, everyone, and we will see you all next week. Bye.